0: It's good to be with you one more time today some of you have been along for the whole journey some of you may maybe this is the first time you've been able to to make it um, and uh, wherever you fit on that thank you for for coming um, I purposefully scheduled this uh, this talk uh, on this evening because uh, in the case that I was tired or a bit cloudy I knew that that if I got to Teach this uh, this this topic, this talk, this sermon tonight. I would have no problem staying awake, um, uh, and and that should just be uh, heard as this uh, this uh, sermon, this talk tonight is on a for me what what has been a uh, it wouldn't be uh, overly dramatic to say it was a it was a revolutionary moment for me. Um, by way of sort of analogy, um, I think this might be helpful in terms of uh, just how uh, how 360 uh, and and then another 180, you know so I went around twice and then finally got the other side of myself. Um, this This insight was that sort of changed much of uh, what I understood discipleship to be in the Gospel of John. just sort of an, an analogy so I've mentioned, uh, you know, I'm a big U2 fan, and, uh, and so I'm going to tell you a little bit of a U2 story for me, so just uh, hang in there. I'm telling this for Henry, basically, because, uh, you know, I know he loves to hear me talk about U2, like he talks about the blues. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's true. Um, so, uh, you know, on a recent album that, uh, that uh, U2 put out, their last album, it was called uh, Experience uh, and Innocence. Um, there is a song on that album called The Little Things That Give You Away. Um, the Little Things That Give You Away. And, and you know, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how many times I've listened to that, uh, That uh, you can't really call them albums anymore, but I've listened to that album, and how many times I've actually listened to that song, The Little Things That Give You Away. Um, you know, it might even be close to a hundred. I, I can't remember, but I have listened to it so many times, and I've always thought that uh, the song was a was a representation of sort of Bono's uh, perspective on somebody else. Um, so, so of course, when when you know a singer, lead singer is singing, you sort of assume that they're talking to somebody else, right? And this song, little things that give you away, just to get a sense of it. It's it's a song about. Um, a, a relationship, clearly some sort of a, a, a relationship. Perhaps even, you know, you might uh, even kind of intonate that it's a marriage, and and it's a lyrical sort of po- po- uh, poetic thing. But what you get, what you take away from it is that uh, one of the people in this relation, one of the persons in this relationship, um, is so uh, um, so absorbed with themselves that they don't see the other person. So, so one of the lines is, uh, I'm not a ghost now. I can see you. You need to see me. And then there's another line where, where it says, uh, you, I saw you on the stairs. You didn't notice I was there because you were talking at me and not to me. Um, and it says, the little things that give you away, the words you cannot say, your big mouth in the way. So the little things that give you away. Um, another line, another little phrase is, you're high above the storm. The hurricane is born. Um, the idea that that you know you're so kind of out of touch with what's going on on the ground, um, and, and, and it, as the song progresses, I wish I could play it for you, but I wasn't, I'm not prepared. This was kind of just off the top of my head here. Um, uh, as the song progresses, it it becomes uh, darker and darker as as the person begins to uh, become uh, feel a sense of hopelessness that this person clearly with whom they love, will never see them. Um, and and it, it very much uh, resembles a lament, frankly, where the language of the intensity uh, reaches the level of hurt. Um, it's, 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 that's the one th- beautiful thing about the, the, the lament songs. The lam- lament songs teach us that when, the, when the, the hurt is this high, the language that we use has to meet it. If it doesn't, we then, we, we don't actually reach consciously. We don't accept just how much pain we're going through. We minimize it. And, and the, the, the um, lament psalms invite uh, uh, worshipers of the God of Israel to, to uh, be open, to be willing to say to God what is truly the, the experience of being human. And, and uh, it uses some very, very uh, intense and dark language, the, the Psalms of Lament do. Um, and, and it's not the kind of, it's not the, like pretty stuff. It's not like, you know, it doesn't make you feel so good. It's not often the stuff that you would hear um, taught in, in church, because it's just, it's just a little, um, it's a little violent, you know. God uh, breaks the teeth of their children, um, that sort of thing. Um, but, but the, the principle of of lament is if you do not express those things, you can never move through the process of grief to some new space. Okay, well, this song, "Little Things to Give You Away," and I hope you look it up on, on YouTube because there's a great video of it. Um, the little things to give you away sort of builds up from this kind of this this sense of um, of despair. It it, it kind of keeps moving to where. The the lyric goes sometimes sometimes the end is not coming sometimes the end is not coming and then it's like sometimes 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 and you're just feeling like emotionally sort of dragged out like when is this thing going to come to its resolution and and, it, and the song ends sometimes the end is not coming sometimes the end is is ne- here the end is now uh, and and you're kind of thinking well is, is this the 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 description of sort of the end of a relationship um, but before it finishes there's one little bit of line that says. Uh, it's very uh, the the stained glass is is broken, um, which is a very interesting sort of way of of, of uh, alluding to faith in the place of, of desperation, where um, our conceptions of 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 God and of Yeshua and the Christian life uh, begin to sort of. Uh, become dis- we become disillusioned, and the, the painted glass, you know, uh, of of church windows doesn't uh, uh, doesn't hold the, 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 the naive beliefs of a of a, of a childish faith. But then, and so this is the point I want to, I want to get to in this. But then the the last line is, um, is is uh, I the, the 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 words go. I will I will keep seeing you through tears. I, I will keep seeing you through tears. This is the one thing I know I'll keep seeing you through the tears and and um, you know that that led me to think you know, like a psalm, uh, the lament psalm, it doesn't in any way diminish the, the the gravity of the pain, but there is at the end of a lament song a, a capacity continue to to hope to have something of a of a, of a a, a, ability to maintain faith in in the spite of all of the the pain and and that i that's you know the one thing I know is I'll see you through the tears uh, is so beautiful because here is this person saying, You don't see me, you don't see me. I'm in desperate, desperate um, uh, hopelessness that this relationship will ever be what uh, I wanted it to be but 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 the end is to say, but that's not going to keep me from continuing to see you. So I will see you through my tears, which means I'm going to keep looking at you, even or no matter what it costs me. Okay, so I'm, you know, I'm thinking, okay, Bono's saying this to somebody, and this, you know, that's, I mean, who, who does Bono think he is? I mean, you know, uh, uh, and and so I'm, so a few weeks ago, uh, literally, this is like three weeks ago. Uh, I have a quite a long commute to to North Park because I live um, in the suburbs, and so i 'm driving it 's early in the morning and again i 'm listening to this song you know as I do, and it just like bam, it struck me like like I had a hundred and eighty degree paradigmatic s- sort of turnaround in this insight to this song that just that just uh, shattered me, not kidding because as I was listening to it on that particular day it 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 all of a sudden made complete sense because I I realized that this was not Bono singing to someone else. This was Bono's wife singing to him. So the whole song is actually a, 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 a a lament that his wife is expressing to him because he's the one who the little things gave him away. The words he couldn't say, the big mouth and the way. He's the one that didn't see her, that treated her as a ghost. Um, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, Lord, you have to hit me with that this morning? Because the reality is that when I had that 180 degree turn, it had a complete conviction of God that I'm that person too. That the way I have lived with respect to my wife over 25 years uh, has been um, because of you know my own narcissism or, or my own drivenness. Uh, as much as she's tried to get me to look at her to see her, uh, I've been high above the storm, and and it just you know I I just had this this empathy for what uh, Carla has had to live with for for these years and, and that and that she has been willing to to stay seeing me even even in the tears. And so the next day uh, I have a long work on day on Monday, so I went home on, on Tuesday and I said, I said, Carl, I need to show you this 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 uh, movie or this video. And and so I'd print out the lyric and and I said, just listen you know, she she thinks I'm just you know uh, an insane U2 fan because I just that's all I listen to. But she's like, oh okay, okay. I said, I said honey, you gotta listen to this song. Um, so I, I played it for her. And I gave her the lyric, and I said, "Now let me walk you through this lyric." So I walked through this lyric, starting to just, just cry, because uh, for the first time she heard me express to her how I saw her, her the cost of our relationship for her. And and uh, and then we played it again, and uh, and just watched it with that sort of perspective on it. And. And uh, it, might have, it might have been the most uh, transformative thing that's happened to me in, in many years, and it, it wasn't because I was reading the Bible. <laughs> I mean, I had, a, I had a biblical saturated mind, because I, I took the, 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 the interpretation to a place of con- conviction. But... Um, you know, it's that sort of 180 degree turn. That's an honest story. That actually happened. I didn't make that. It wasn't like a canned. I didn't find that in a book, by the way. And just uh, throw that out to you uh, and act like I was the one that that, that was the no. That actually happened. Um, and uh, so, uh, what I wanted to, to express that is, when I come to the story of Nicodemus, it was very similar. And I, I actually now I was trying to think of when did when did this sort of um, when did this uh, observation kind of kind of uh, come to me like that sort of load of bricks, um, like when I realized what the, the little things that give you away meant? And I, and I, I, lit- I really can't remember. Um, I know it has to have been in the last, say, uh, 13 years, because that's how long I've been teaching the book of John. Um, and I remember uh, writing a short article, uh, uh, a... Um, you know, a popular article on, on, uh, on Nicodemus. I was invited to, to write in a series where we were discussing important people in the Bible and, and I was asked to write on Nicodemus. I, it might have been in crafting that that I kind of finally put the pieces together and I'm like, oh, what? Um, and, and so tonight, I want to, you may have never heard of this perspective on Nicodemus, which means I might be brilliant or I might just be a completely off my rocker. Um, you know, that's, that's the edge of creativity, right? Um, but but I'll have to t- I have to tell you that I, I, I do not now believe that I'm off my cr- cr- uh, cradle or off the chair or whatever uh, that metaphor is. Um, because I think this is the very thing that complements the story we looked at this morning. The, the, the paradigm, the paradigmatic genuine disciple, the, the man born blind, And we come to Nicodemus, um, perhaps we have yet to uncover his story well enough to to render a judgment. Um, But I think we're going to see, I hope that you with me see, that Nicodemus uh, becomes a character that we don't look at with some um, sympathy for, but that we, we look at him as one of those tragic, dark, Characters in a story who's so close to sort of uh, to, to to finding the resolution of something or the so close to becoming the the man that they really wanted to be, but then right at the end, um, something sabotages um, the dark protagonist character. But but by suggesting that, I probably at least if if you know if you've ever heard of Nicodemus, um, and if you've ever you know. Uh, been exposed to his story, say, to the extent you have, it's almost universally the case that we look at Nicodemus conventionally as this sort of, you know, this, this seeker, um, a, a, a Jewish aristocrat, a Pharisee, uh, a, 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 um, a preeminent scholar among his day, and, and he begins in, you know, we're introduced to him in chapter 3, um, and and chapter three we'll look at it in a minute carefully, but but you know here's this 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 scholar with, with a great reputation up to uphold and and he comes to Jesus at night and he's he's interested he's seeking to understand Jesus. Um, and, and this doesn't really go very well for him. <laughs> I mean, if you, I think we heard this read the, the, this, uh, this morning. I mean, it starts pretty well, and then, and then Jesus kind of levels, you know, I thought you were a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? You know, it's like, uh, come on, Nicodemus. Um, and, but the idea you come away with, typically, uh, with Nicodemus chapter 3 is, hey, at least he showed up. I mean, none, none of the other you know, Pharisees had sort of even... Really sought to understand Jesus. At least he showed up. You know that he's got some interest. He has. He has a seeker um, uh, uh, driven. He's he's driven to to kind of try to get his head around Jesus to come to Jesus and and so you know we're kind of okay. We're not sure you know what to think about Nicodemus and so he sort of steps back out of the out of the story until chapter seven when um, there is a uh, a discussion. Uh, between and among the Jewish leaders about what to do with Jesus. And again, we're going to look at this more carefully. But but there we have Nicodemus um, it, attempting, maybe his best attempt, to to sort of um, uh, lightly defend uh, Yeshua. Um, uh, to, to sort of at least uh, stem the tide of this sort of wave of criticism. It's very light. So we're like, okay, you know, He's he's moving here. He's 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 beginning to kind of get it. I mean, he's willing to. Okay, he doesn't do very much, but you know, he t- he puts his toe out. Come on, Nicodemus. You know, yeah. Come on, go do it. You can do it. And then and then he again he steps out of the narrative, only to come back the last and third time, in chapter 19 after Jesus' death. He along with Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, brings an enormous, inordinate amount of of spices uh, in terms of their 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 uh, their weight and their value, extraordinary, extraordinary amount. And they request from Pilate to take the body of Jesus. They prepare it for burial, and they bury Jesus. And so the the sort of the narrative, the conventional narrative is: Look at this guy. He's gone from sort of seeker, he's he's moved to sort of at least sign of trying to, well, maybe Jesus isn't as bad as we think. Yeshua's not bad as we think. And then, look, after his death, he's with Joseph and Arthea bringing in all this, you know, expensive stuff, and they're responsible for Jesus' burial. I mean, Nicodemus has undergone a transformation in this gospel, a transformation to a place of, from, from a, a seeker to a, a person that is willing to identify himself with Jesus. You might say, Will, isn't that exactly what you said about the, 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 the man born blind this morning? It's, it's genuine discipleship is the willingness to go public, demonstratively embodied, public uh, um, display of loyalty to Yeshua. Isn't, isn't that what we see here in, in John 19? What, what do you, what are you, why are you even suggesting there might be a, a shadow here? Um, and perhaps, you know, that's where you're at now. You're like, okay, you've convinced me that I'm not sure why I should think that actually you were going to tell me something I didn't know. Um, well, this conventional view, I want to suggest, is, is undermined by the very narrative of John uh, itself. And, and what, I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to, ta- to reassess the characterization of, of uh, Nicodemus. Um, this is a, you know, if you go back to your literature class, this is a, a characterization study, a study of character. And when you study character in a narrative, the only way to know whether or not, uh, uh, you know, this is a character who the author is, is suggesting should be modeled after, like this is a character we want to identify with, or if it's a character that we want to sort of... Uh, Sort of stay away from in terms of finding any any uh, any similarities with. We only know that as the as the as the narrator unfolds the actions, the attitudes, and the words of a character. Um, that's the way you kind of as a, as a, as a as a storyteller. That's the only way you can actually teach virtue through a story. Teach virtue not by telling virtues, but by displaying them or. You know, contrary, anti-virtues or something like that. And so what we're gonna do um, for, the, for the time is, is just to reconsider how John presents Nicodemus through this, through this, um, this narrative. And, and the, uh, the uh, framework continues to be the same that we've been pursuing uh, all through this series of teaching. Uh, the discipleship, the, the, the following after Yeshua, um, is not about getting our head around something, putting it within a framework we can understand, and then deciding to join him, to jump in, to come and see. Um, in fact, uh, this this characterization is going to is going to uh, directly uh, 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 counter that that approach. Uh, we're we're going to I think see that. Um, uh, the difference, there's a big difference between the man born blind and Nicodemus, and they become kind of the, the, um, the opposing or con- con- contrarian examples of, of how one responds to being present with Jesus, okay? So I think the first clue that I ever noticed that there might be something shadowy that John has to say about Nicodemus uh, in the introduction to Nicodemus in John chapter 2. You really gotta have your, your Bible open, John chapter 2. And I want you to observe something. I have just stated that the Nicodemus story begins in John chapter 2. Why do you think I'm off by just a couple of verses? Because in my Bible, the NIV, the Nicodemus story doesn't begin until chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. So why would I suggest that actually the beginning of the Nicodemus story is at 223 and not 3.1? Because especially there's a big three there in the Bible. Isn't there? See that three? Don't you know that there's a chapter division there? Well... This is a great example of something that we we need to you know even even in just sort of kind of just everyday uh, uh, congregational life uh, how we read the Bible. We this should be a basic premise that the chapter numbers and where the breaks are are not inspired. Uh, It wasn't until the medieval period that there was chapters and verses. Medieval period over a thousand years after these texts were. Were uh, were uh, gathered, which means that it was a lot harder to read it before. <laughs> it's like if you'd be teaching on it, you'd be like, "Okay, go to uh, well, um, just just listen." <laughs> um, so whoever uh, did the did the, the labor of love to give us chapters and verses, let's let's not be too critical. Let's be sort of thankful because it makes communication around scripture much easier. But sometimes it obscures stuff because it, it, it breaks something that should not be broken. And, and if you kind of are like the read a chapter a day to keep the devil away kind of person, uh, then you're going you're gonna to stop at chapter two and you're going to put it away and then you're going to pick up chapter three the next day and you're not even going to see the connection between two and three. And I, I kind of think that this is probably why, you know, if anybody else has thought this, you know, uh, tell me about it because I've never read anyone that has had this idea. But, but there are scholars who know that chapter divisions don't matter, but you're going to see how significant it is that we keep all this together. I mean, you're just going to, it's going to like blow your mind. And this is not like rocket science here, it's just, you know, uh, observation, interpretation, uh, application, you kind know, of the, the basic. Um, you know Bible study method type stuff. Okay, so if you get the context, uh, Yeshua has just performed a demonstration in the temple. You know he 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 goes rogue and starts knocking stuff around and and uh, kind of creating a great disturbance. And and unique to John, uh, we have a discussion which we're not going to have time to un, uh, you know unpack. But unlike the synoptic gospels. Uh, uh, John's perspective on this on this uh, story is that it reveals uh, Yeshua's uh, temple presence. That that according to John, uh, Yeshua's body uh, is the is the place on earth where God's presence is demonstrated, displayed, seen. Um, he he's he's he makes this. Pretty uh, um, extraordinary uh, uh, connection between Jesus's body and and the temple, um, and and this is uh, actually if you ever get interested in this from a Messianic Jewish perspective, Mark Kinzer has a really really nice uh, essay on uh, the temple Jesus's body in, in in John because this has been. Uh, much misused as a as a as a text to talk about how Jesus has replaced uh, sacred space in uh, uh, for for Israel. So uh, anyway, it's a kind of a it's an important passage in this regard. But what I wanted you to see then is uh, verse 23. Okay, so 2:23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing. And believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Now let me just pause and make a comment. This is very, very profound. Um, it's harder to to um, uh, grasp when you're not reading um, in the Greek, because the Greek is much more uh, it's much more evident. But it's still very it's, it's, if I point it to you, you'll, you'll be readily be able to notice. But we've just been told that many people saw the, and, and the signs and they believed in the name of Yeshua. Immediately then, uh, the author says that Yeshua would not entrust himself. Those words are the same thing. Many people believed, and then it says Jesus, though, didn't believe in them. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, that's, that, you know, that is somewhat um, hidden behind the, the different translation sort of words, which you know, give, the, give translations the benefit of the doubt. They're just trying to communicate, like, what is this, how, how does this make sense in, in a, uh, to a reader? But uh, if you don't see that connection, you miss something very profound. Uh, and I'm not going to try to explain it, because I don't know that it, I could do a very good job, but there is a bind again here. There's a tension People can believe in Yeshua, but He might not believe in them. Ooh, I don't know what you do with that. Um, uh, Calvinists would say yes, because it's about election. So if you're not the elect, you believe, but it won't matter because you're not a part of the elect. Something like that. But I think that's just silly, um, because there's none of that in this passage. It's just an acknowledgement that uh, that this isn't God isn't isn't strong-armed into having to save us because of our belief, like. Oh, I see you believe in me. Well, g- great. Thank you very much, and come on in. Um, it, sorry, but it doesn't... There is a level of of uh, reverence that has to come with the grace offered. Um, Israel's God is not our equal. It's not like, well, I believe in you. It's... It's so much, uh, there's so much more that's uh, at stake than what we do or don't do. And, and there is a, at the very least, I'll just say it at the end because I'm saying I don't, know how to, I don't know how to interpret this, but there should be at least something of a, of a, um, of a uh, humility in what we assume our faith accomplishes. Um, in other words, um, we can't strong-arm God. God is, has a mysterious Work and uh, and as soon as you sort of put him in a box that that locks him to obligation in this sense that simply because as you'll see you have some pejor- kind of you have some priority because you are uh, within the the uh, Israel of God that somehow um, uh, compels God to to uh, to act uh, for you. Um, uh, there is this uh, dominant theme in John of, of God a calling out a remnant um, through the witness of the Baptist, through the witness of the immer- Immerser. Um, and in that calling out, and this would be true of the synoptics, there becomes a differentiation. Um, and, and I think uh, what I'm just hinting at is that um, uh, no human has a uh, a claim on God's uh, freedom of will. God, God makes promises. He 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 makes covenants that are that are uh, irrevocable. But we cannot presume on God's will. But then it gets a bit even more <laughs> uh, interesting in terms of Nicodemus, because as we've just read, um, people have believed in Yeshua. He has not necessarily uh, reciprocated that. The reason is because uh, the text says he he knew all people. Um, verse twenty-five. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he was he knew what was in each person. Um, before I move to the f- the first verse of chapter three, again I need to just make a, a comment about about uh, the original language and the translation and if you have different translation this might be not nearly as as difficult to see but again i'm, I'm using the niv which is uh is 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 not a is not a um a word for word liter- literal translation it is uh it is a translation that attempts to capture concept with concept and um and literal translations uh, uh, dynamic equivalent translations—the the concept to concept—both have a place. They're both useful, um, but but again, sometimes the, these translations hide some of the very uh, key uh, key points that that the the Greek would pull out. So here's here's the, the here's the the heart of the matter. Uh, verse twenty five actually says, you know, the the literal translations. He did not need any testimony about man, anthrop. Pass generically, but mankind is a good translation. But you will miss something if then you don't realize that the next line: "For he knew what was in each anthropos." Okay, so you have something of a a a chain beginning to yeah one two okay, um, and and then here's the here's the the lynch of this. You come to chapter three verse one. And in the Greek, it says, now there was an anthropos who was a Pharisee. His name was Nicodemus. Then all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Because Yeshua has just said, m- many people have, have uh, believed in him, but he has not entrusted himself to them because he knows what is, uh, what is the truth about man. Um, he didn't need anybody to testify about Man or mankind, and oh, and there just happens to be a man. Uh, And all of a sudden, what then becomes quite evident through the craft of writing is that we see the author linking the story of Nicodemus with this uh, judgmental comment about his reservation in entrusting himself to people in Jerusalem. So immediately, in the introduction of Nicodemus in chapters, end of chapter 2, verse 3, and chapter 3, we realize that, that Nicodemus' introduction is the example to substantiate the point that John makes in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Nicodemus is not someone who is a is a is a figure that that John is inviting us to to emulate. Rather, he is representing the type of people that are described as the people Yeshua did not entrust himself to. Boom! The little things that give you away. Um, and and uh, I mean, it's it's incontestable. <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't argue about that. I mean, it's like. I say that, I show you that. You're like, uh, yeah, it is incontestable because it's just a clear chaining of one thing to another thing. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful simplicity of connecting things. Man, man, man. Um, well, if that's the case, then even getting into the story of Nicodemus has already been shaped to see him a certain way. We are directed by the author to look at Nicodemus through a certain set of lenses. And they are a critical set of lenses. Uh, we are to see this as a cautionary tale of a person who, who seems to have all the telltale signs of someone who, who's, who's, who's believing, but their belief is, is invalid enough that Yeshua doesn't, doesn't welcome it. <laughs> well, uh, does that continue to play out? in this text Uh, well yeah Uh, this observation then actually works itself out and let me just give you a couple of these hints just in this this chapter Um, so we're told that there was a man a Pharisee named Nicodemus he was a member of the Jewish ruling council the Sanhedrin Um, he came to Jesus at night and said Rabbi we know that you are a teacher who has come from God uh, for no one could do or could perform the signs you were doing if they were not from God, and and Jesus Yeshua being who he is so so uh, so um, uh, so so wise and shrewd in the way he he addresses those that approach him, just like in the first chapter, you know, like, uh, hey Jesus, hey Yeshua, where are you go? Where do you stay? And as the response of, what are you seeking? Why are you, why are you, what are you looking for? Yeshua says, come and see. Well, you didn't expect that. It was provoking. It was, it was, it was provoking uh, response. It was provoking uh, presence. Uh, and, and in a similar way, that's exactly what happens here with Yeshua's uh, statement that seems to totally ignore what Nicodemus just said. He gets right to the heart of the matter, um, with this bizarre, is certainly bizarre to, to Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he unless they are born again. Nicodemus is like what born again? And he's reading he he's reading a shoe he's hearing a shoe and he's saying he's thinking literal. Like and so he asks, how could someone be born when they are old? This is a technique of John. I love it. It's called it's called misunderstanding. It's the it's the it's the tactic of of misunderstanding. So John will suggest that uh, that uh, Yeshua says something or does something, and somebody doesn't understand, and then it gives Yeshua the opportunity to explain it. Um, it's it's sort of a technique to 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 move the narrative along. Um, it's beautiful. You could look at many of these, uh, like the woman uh, at the well in, in, in chapter four, where um, Jesus, she was like, "Give me some water," and she's like, "Well, you don't have a, you know, you don't have something to dip with, to 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 to, uh, to draw it out with," and uh, and so water becomes this literal thing, but Yeshua's talking about something else, and so all of a sudden, then you get this 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 explanation um, based on the misunderstanding. But uh, without sort of going verse by verse here, because I, I think we'll, we need to move, move, uh, take a step forward. Uh, what I want you to sort of appreciate is that Nicodemus is—he's <laughs> trying really, really hard to to, to take Yeshua's um, ideas and fit them with his preconceived notions of the of of what is true. And and the logical structures and the tradition structures that that help him uh, p- understand his place in the world, how to function. I mean, Yeshua is just he. Nick cannot get his head around Yeshua. It's like he's he's con- con- totally confused this whole time. He's, he's like, it's a, it, have you ever been? You know, probably you feel like that with me. But you you you've you've been you're like hearing a person go on and on, and you're like, you know. Uh, I don't know, like aer- aer- aeronautic engineering or something. It's like it's so foreign to the way my mind has been framed. I can't even, can't even, can't even get any of it. Um, and I, I might try because you know I'm a, I'm a curious person, so I'm going to try to somehow. But then it just it just can't grasp it as much as I might have tried. Um, and and that's that's what we get here. With Nicodemus, he is he is so hard trying to 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 put Yeshua in some um, uh, understanding at which that he can kind of kind of uh, uh, come to grips with. Um, he's trying to put Yeshua in a in a in a category that he can he can understand to then interpret. And Yeshua is not playing that game. <laughs> he is he is he is. Um, he is bobbing and weaving. He is he is he is uh, he's not allowing Nicodemus to sort of frame Yeshua by his own paradigms. He's trying to, but then Yeshua moves over here. He's he's elusive for a very particular and important reason. Um, and so, what ter- what was a dialogue very quickly becomes a monologue. Um, you after you have um, uh, Yeshua saying. To Nicodemus, you are Israel's one of Israel's teachers, and you do not understand these things. And then all of a sudden, it's just Nicodemus falls out, and you just have uh, Yeshua speaking. And maybe then you have the narrator jumping in at at, uh, at uh, verse eighteen or sixteen. But you know, really, um, the 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 the, uh, the passage from from uh, verse ten to the end of the chapter. Is not clearly differentiated between where Yeshua's statements stop and where the narrator picks up. Um, the, the red lettering here is is just uh, you know hypo- hypothesis. There's no there's no indication there, but uh, but Nicodemus just disappears from this passage. And so, as, as just sort of to wrap this this first passage up, what we discover here is that. Nic- Nicodemus is painted as a, as a, as a poster child for the, the people in Jerusalem who have shown uh, something that you could call belief, believing, uh, but, but Yeshua uh, is not um, receiving that. And, and what you then see in this uh, di- dialogue monologue is that it's Nicodemus' best attempt to put Yeshua in a box So that he can understand Yeshua. And Yeshua uh, refuses to allow Nicodemus to to form him into something Nicodemus can understand. Uh, Yeshua is always elusive in the story to Nicodemus. I think that will be important. So uh, that's, that's sort of the basic kind of foundation passage. So when we come to chapter 7, having had that sort of established, it seems like this whole sort of, you know, well, at least he put his toe in the water, it becomes um, a bit um, uh, less convincing. Um, so chapter 7, and we'll just look at, uh, at verse 50, so we don't take much time here. But they're discussing... Um, Yeshua and, and Nicodemus then pipes in as a maybe a very a light contrarian, and he says, uh, uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to, to see Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And then his, his colleagues retort, are you from Galilee too? Uh, so, Nicodemus makes one very, you know, light statement. He gets pounded and then he's like, okay, I'm out. I Got close, but that was a little too painful. Um, you know, what do we do with that? I mean, there is no weight that we can put on that about Nicodemus' you know, willingness to go public in a demonstrative, embodied way. In fact, quite the contrary, Sticks his toe out, it gets it gets hammered, and he pulls it back in. Well, that's okay. Okay, well, let's, well. Let's look at the last the last uh, example of uh, of uh, the story of Nicodemus in the gospel, and and that is um, um, chapter nineteen, verse uh, thirty eight. Uh, later. This is after the the death of Yeshua. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, Yeshua. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Don't go past this too quickly. But secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Yeshua at night. Now, this is the second time when Nicodemus has been mentioned. It has defined him as the one who has visited him earlier at night, or earlier, in this case, earlier at night. So it's linking all of these together. Um, There is a very important sort of chain here of characterization. Taking Yeshua's body, the two of them wrapped it and with with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Oh, I I skipped the part about... uh, the, uh, they brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, um, according to sort of best guesses. This is a, a, um, a monetary value of tens of thousands of dollars today. I mean, this this is this is no sort of like empty your spice cabinet. Uh, this was tremendously extravagant. Some have even made made the case that this shows uh, that these two were attempting to bury Jesus in a in a royal way to to uh, give Yeshua the proper burial that he deserved as the as the Israel's Messiah, um, and that's the end of Nicodemus' story in in uh, in the in the Gospel. Um, and so, the, you know, what I want to sort of think about is does this does this um, does this paragraph where Nicodemus is is uh, is put to- together with Joseph, and they bury Jesus with this uh, e- extraordinary uh, monetary valued uh, pounds of of spices. Does this does this suggest anything about Nicodemus's discipleship? I mean, you might say, okay, well, it's public, um, or is it? <laughs> um, it's it's uh, it's expensive. It, it, so it's a huge investment. Um, that sounds really good, um, and it's kind. It's it's um, it's hu- human. It's humane. They're taking the the crucified Yeshua and they're giving Yeshua a proper burial, perhaps even one on a on a scale of royalty. So what what are we to take away from that element? That does seem slightly. Um, a bit cheerier of a, of a view of Nicodemus. Well, um, that could be true. Uh, that's a possibility. But given what we've already seen in, in terms of, of John's presentation of Nicodemus, I wonder if this is more ironic. Um, and the irony is that uh, when Yeshua was, was alive, when he wasn't a corpse, the, the, um, the risk For Nicodemus to come out to be a public, demonstrative, embodied loyalist to Yeshua was certainly a a much less significant risk after he's dead. Um, Showing loyalty to a corpse is not loyalty. Um, In fact, it may very well be one of the most ironic parts of, of John's narrative. Because while Nicodemus had plenty of opportunity to do what the man born blind did, he didn't because he didn't want to lose his position, his status, his social location. Notice what it described the two of them. They're secret disciples, secret disciples. What does that say about them? Is that a, is that a, uh, is that a, a compliment for John? Hey, at least you were one. Uh, Well, I think we could answer that uh, pretty easily if we just go over to uh, just one more passage. Uh, If you look at chapter 12, um, and this is kind of in the middle of a transition. You remember last night we talked about how you can break uh, the gospel of John up into two halves based on uh, these pillar witnesses. Uh, John the Mercer, uh, the beloved disciple, and so uh, chapters 11 and 12 become hinges to these two um, major sections. And, and what we have at the end of uh, chapter 12 is a reflection by the narrator as to why so many of, of Yeshua's contemporary J- Jewish compatriots did not believe in him. So... Listen to this. I'm, again, I'm in twelve thirty-seven. Even after Yeshua had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because a, as Isaiah s- says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they neither see with their eyes or understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Yeshua's glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, so the yet, even among the leaders some believed in Yeshua, but because of the Pharisees they would not openly acknowledge their faith for their fear that they would be pulled out of the synagogue for they loved human praise, praise of men more than they, the praise of God. Without going, in, again, into great detail, although we could, it seems to me that there are two types of people being addressed in this passage, two types of Jewish responses. On the one hand, there's a suggestion that, that for a number of compatriots, there was something of a judgment rendered by God that, that uh, was a significant obstacle to their even capacity to believe, to understand enough to believe. Depending on this very difficult uh, you know, interpretation of how we, how we relate Isaiah, the quotation and the use of, to, to what um, John is trying to define here, I'm just suggesting for the sake of argument right now, he's essentially saying there's a group of, of, uh, of Jewish contemporaries of Yeshua that that, that were, were not able to believe. Just say for the sake of argument, there's this group. But then there's this second group. And the second group, they, were, they had the capacity to believe. In fact, they did. But because they were more interested in the praise of men, they were, it was more important for them to receive the praise of men instead of God, they kept their mouths shut. They did not become public, genuine Disciples of Yeshua in the way of the, born, the man born blind. As I read that, I, I hear, and, and, and again, this is not this is not scripture. That was scripture. This is Willits's take on it. To me, it seems that it's it's more of a of a um, of a condemnation for uh, against people who could go public but choose not to than for those, in a sense, who weren't really able to understand enough or get far enough to even come to a place of decision. So what I want to suggest to you is that in this, in this context, the real, the real indictment is against this group of, of, of uh, Jewish leaders who believed but did not, did not demonstrate publicly and in an embodied way, that, that loyalty. And so if that's true, you might find that harder to, you know, to, to sort of say. So I'm saying if that's true, then when we come back to Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and, and John calls them secret disciples, it, it, it brings us back here to chapter 12. And it makes their act of generosity a terrible irony because in their attempt to sort of uh, connect with Yeshua with being in Yeshua's presence when it was possible to become genuine they didn't decide to but after Yeshua is a corpse they they shower the corpse with the gifts with without any cost might have cost them monetarily but they didn't have to pay any social public Price, and so um, one little last detail that kind of sort of just puts this in the in a whew, in the most powerful way. I want to go back to that word night. It was mentioned several times. Nicodemus came at night. And then we were reminded that he was the one that came at night. Do you know the only other time that word is used? You know where the only other time that word is used, Henry? Where's the only other time? The word night is used in the Gospel of John. Do you know? Close. But that's not in this Gospel, sorry. No, it's in the same story, okay? So the, the upper room, the betrayal, the betrayal. Judas leaves, and the writer says, and it was night. Well, let me just tell you, you do not want to be associated with Judas. Um, and so the fact that Nicodemus is connected with this darkness, that was the cover of the betrayer Um, in the in the larger framework that light and dark uh, is a is an important um, uh, kind of apocalyptic uh, uh, antithesis Um, chapter one in the in the in the prologue Uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it so Nicodemus is presented as someone who represents people in Jerusalem with which Yeshua did not receive their faith. Nicodemus shows very little courage in uh, what you could hardly call an attempt to, to, uh, to, to be of some sort of a, of a dissenting voice in the Sanhedrin. There's only three times uh, the uh, the word knight is used unless Henry can remember a fourth, uh, which I'll just tell me afterwards. Um, uh, but it again it again is the it's, it's the it's the still proves the rule. Um, you don't want to be associated with knight. Um, and 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 then this scene, which is perhaps most tragic, here's these two men. Um, also under the cover of, of dark it's it's at this sort of it's at the it's at the cusp of shabbat it's a, it's at that kind of the, the the you know it's almost about to be shabbat the the sun is is setting and 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 uh, the act of kindness is really the most tragic um, the saddest part of the story they waited too long they didn't do it when it really mattered and so nicodemus is not someone with whom we wanna be associated, we wanna emulate. In fact, he's far from it. He is the epitome of the counterfeit disciple for John. It teaches us that, that there is no virtue in seeking but never finding. There is absolutely no virtue in staying in a seeker position and finding somehow religious significance from the fact that you are seeking you are, you are, you know, you're open. You're willing to ask all kinds of questions. You're, you're hanging out, soaking it up. That's not a virtue. I mean, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> um, you, if you weren't here, you couldn't hear this. Me say it's not a virtue. Um, but there are a lot of people that think it's very virtuous to be a seeker. In fact, there was a Bible that came out of Willow Creek that was called the Seeker Bible. And it was, its purpose was to, uh, you know, be given to seekers. Um, and I suppose they could just keep reading it because it was the seeker Bible. So it didn't actually call them to anything other than seeking. Uh, but it's no, there's no virtue in seeking if you don't find. The only virtue in seeking is to be, to find. Um, I don't know why those people, like, have those things, in the ocean, you know, the, the beach all the time. You know, they're just like, and like, like find a penny. I'm like, Sorry if this would offend you, like you do that kind of thing, but I just sort of sit around and watch, like, is it really, you know, is it worth your time to find, like, a nickel? (laughs) You know, it's not like you're finding gold there. Well, I suppose you might find a ring, I guess. Uh, I correct myself. But, you know, it's seeking has to find, or it's it's not virtuous. I think another uh, implication of this that's really important for us is that Nicodemus... uh, challenge would would be disciples uh to commit to following jesus without abandon, without abandon i mean you just have to be willing to jump you have to be willing to uh, make a decision without any um not not with it not with uns with not without any uncertainty but within the midst of uncertainty it's like you're all in that's what nicodemus teaches us um and and another important thing that just is so powerful to me is, uh, G- Yeshua refuses to be shaped into a into a uh, a bite size um, formed uh, idea that we can we can um, process through our own sort of faculties. He defies categorization. He defies the attempt by us to, to lock him into something that we can understand. No, he demands that we come to him without any expectations of understanding. Um, Nicodemus' problem was he was not willing to, uh, to submit his, his, his mind to Yeshua. He, he wasn't able to sort of put the priority on, on the person of Yeshua instead of the priority on his attempt to understand Yeshua. And that is always a significant obstacle to true discipleship if we, if we have more loyalty to our reason than we do to the person. Um, but to end it on a more happy note, no, no, To end it on a note that's also very, very um, important in this, you know, fortunately for Nicodemus, the scene in chapter 19 is not the last scene of his life. Now, we have no idea where Nicodemus went after that chapter 19. There are some interesting uh, traditions that were told by some of the church fathers like like Augustine, and Nicodemus ends up becoming a very prominent leader in in the Jewish church, In um, Jerusalem, and is you know is buried, and then his grave is found in the fifth century, and he's moved over here, and you know Augustine has lots of things to say about it, but you know we have no sort of way to validate or, or to verify it. But but I hope I hope Augustine is right. I hope Augustine is voicing something about Nicodemus that would be the most remarkable thing, and that is what matters is where you finish, not where you started. And if any of us had, had, if any of our lives were taken as kind of, a, you know, an a era defined us wholly, uh, that could be alarming. I'm not going to get this correct, but I think somebody has, has noted that if you took uh, Adolf Hitler's life and you just took a section of it and you, and you interpreted his whole life by a section, you would never have been able to understand sort of what he would have, uh, 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 atrocities he would have accomplished. In his life, or, or committed, um, and so to try to boil anyone essentially down to a a uh, a a period of time and say this is who this person is is to um, is to commit an error that doesn't then uh, give any um, generosity to the idea that people can change, even you know our relatives, <laughs> um, our friends that. Uh, that anything 's possible and and so the story in, in John is very dark for Nicodemus, but that 's not the last chapter of his story and so this story of Nicodemus in John is not one that invites emulation it 's one that invites um, uh, critique it invites us to to define the following after Yeshua as public and all in or it 's not. Um, John sees it as one or two. either, it's either this or that. He doesn't give anyone cover. It's either you're all in or you're not in at all. And, uh, and so uh, that's the sobering part of, of Nicodemus' story. But as it might be for any one of us, or for some of us who know um, uh, friends or family that... Uh, that perhaps uh, uh, look a lot like Nicodemus, um, it, it, it gives us still this hope that uh, that that there is, there is more to the story. so um, yeah, just to sum sum up and, and, and say in, in in relationship to the man born blind that we looked at this morning, we have the two paradigms of response to Jesus to Yeshua, that is. That is effective and genuine, and one that is that is um, disingenuous and therefore ineffective for um, a a uh, a presence with Yeshua that will lead to abundant life and ultimately to um, to new creation, to uh, to partaking in the in the world to come. So uh, let's just uh, pray together. Um, and and um, just reflect now on these two these two poles of response to Yeshua. Yeshua uh, and uh, and Father and the Ruach God, we, we ask that you would come and you would reveal your heart and your presence to us um, and that you would use. Your word to invite us to evaluate our relationship to the Messiah. Yeshua, show us uh, who we more resemble, man born blind or Nicodemus. And we invite that because uh, we don't want to be um, deceiving ourselves, to think that we are committed followers of you, when from your vantage point, we are not. May it be sobering to us in a way that leads us to truth, to recognize that very provocative contrast that people believed in you, but you weren't willing to believe in them. May that provoke us to clarity in our discipleship, in our followership after you, Yeshua, so that we might... be able to have a self-awareness that doesn't doesn't pretend to be something, that isn't willing to continue to pretend to be something that we really aren't. Um, May this convict us. May this lead us in repentance to a genuine reception of your resurrected, embodied presence with us as your people. In the name of Yeshua, amen.